0: Hello, and welcome to the Landis Cooperative Experience, featuring the bull bear banter. We all know that markets often behave in a way that can't easily be explained. The bull bear banter is our best effort to digest the noise of the marketplace. So thank you for joining us. Sit back, relax, and let's talk about the markets. Hello, this is Tom Guinan, and I want to welcome you to the January 24th episode of the bull bear banter. Cheyenne Dunham is joining me today and will be giving us an update on the grain markets. Cheyenne?
1: Friday afternoon March corn closed down six and a half at 387 and a quarter and that was down two cents for the week. December corn closed down 5 cents at 398 and a quarter and that was down four and a half from last Friday's close. Looking at beans, March closed down seven and a half cents today at 902 and that was down about 28 cents for the week. November soybeans closed down eight and a half at 938 and 3 quarters and that was down almost 22 cents from last Friday's close.
0: Well, Cheyenne, I think there are certainly a lot of candidates for the big story this week. The ongoing impeachment trial in Washington, the prolonged decline in soybean values, and then soybean harvest beginning in Brazil. But I really think the big story this week is that ever-widening issue of coronavirus in China. With a confirmed case in the U.S. and now other parts of China also reporting cases, this is a cause for alarm. A quick search on the internet says that coronaviruses are a large family of viruses with effects that range from the common cold to much more serious diseases. This is the family of viruses that also produce Sudden Respiratory Syndrome or SARS. I'm sure that many people remember the SARS outbreak back in 2002 and 2003. We learned earlier this week that the Chinese government is trying to restrict travel into and out of cities like Wuhan where it was first identified. Apparently, there are other towns and cities in China that are also being shut down to travel. With the Lunar New Year holiday starting this Saturday in China and Taiwan, it will be important to see how this new virus impacts celebrations. We're already hearing of some celebrations being canceled because of this. So I think this will negatively impact the consumption of food and thereby impact longer-term demand for grains and feed for animals. This is something that's not going to end quickly and definitely something to keep an eye on from a demand perspective. At the end of today's podcast, we have a special segment that we think will appeal to many of you. I recently had the chance to sit down and talk with a farmer that has won the state yield contest for four straight years. His winning entry this year was 357 bushels per acre. This is also the number two in the nation for the category of no-till irrigated. I think you'll enjoy hearing how they irrigate their corn in rolling hills, so stay tuned for that at the end of today's podcast. Well, Cheyenne, with that said, I think we'll just kind of condense our normal podcast a bit, but let's hit some of the highlights, and I'm going to let you do the corn, bull and bear factors, and then I'll do soybeans.
1: Sure thing, Tom. On the corn side, we've seen some mini rallies in corn lately, some based on the dryness in Argentina and others based on strength in the wheat market. So far, we're not seeing or hearing of major selling being done by farmers, so corn basis remains strong. Ethanol production fell last week to about 309 million gallons. With corn prices struggling a bit and not a lot of people selling, basis remains strong, which is hurting the ethanol industry. And exports were only 13.6 million bushels last week, which was below the range of expectations. This is the third lowest number for the 20 weeks of this marketing year.
0: Well, on the soybean side, the good news is that exports are right at the top end of the range at 44.1 million bushels. This is the five-week high. Now sitting at 888 million for the year. We're about 24% ahead of this time last year. As we mentioned last week, the U.S. crush has been strong. Some of this is due to concerns about palm oil, but this week those values took a little bit of a step back. With the U.S. soy processors crushing for oil, they have to continually look for meal demand, and without a major export program, that could begin to hurt them before too long. Beyond that, there really isn't too much to be bullish about in beans. We've dropped quite a bit from those highs set on January 2nd, South America is seeing their early harvest start, and in a couple weeks will be much further into harvest. That Brazilian crop is supposed to be record large this year. So what to watch for in some upcoming events? We've been seeing quite a bit of interest in the averaging contracts for 2020. The deadline for sign-up is in February, so you still have some time to learn about this contract. Please contact your local GMA for more information. Our Women in Ag event, Ventures, will be held on February 15th in Ankeny. We'll have the host of Market to Market, Delaney Howell, as our keynote speaker. We'll also be joined by Katie Hall, who's the Director of Government Affairs for the Iowa Institute for Cooperatives. We really think that the entire slate of speakers and breakout sessions will be something that a lot of people will be interested in, so we really encourage you to find out more about that by checking our Events tab on our website. As I mentioned earlier, please stick around for the interview with Kelly Garrett. I've actually known Kelly for quite a while. His mother is related to my wife and we go back quite a ways, but the conversation we had really opened my eyes to how high yields can be for corn in Iowa. He's also got some good thoughts on marketing grain. He mentions premium offer during the interview, which is something that we use, but we call it bonus premium. So we hope you stick around for that interview.
1: So why does it all matter? With the markets bouncing around lately, it feels like more people are sitting on the sidelines waiting for a better price. We continue to encourage you to check your grain bins, we're starting to hear of some issues with some of the wet corn and beans that got put into storage this fall. A lot of end users located outside of the state are looking for good quality corn, and for the most part, Iowa is one of the only places they can look for that. This year, we've had an opportunity to sell into places that normally can't be reached from Iowa.
0: So in conclusion, we appreciate you joining us for the Bull Bear Banter. If you'd like to contact us, you can send a tweet to at Landis Co-op or drop an email to podcast at landiscooperative.com. Our tagline is Bears Make Money, Bulls Make Money, and Pigs Just Go to Market. If you have any questions regarding grain marketing decisions, please reach out to your area grain marketing advisor. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. Hi, this is Tom Guinan, and I'm sitting down today with Kelly Garrett. Kelly is a farmer in uh, Arian, Iowa, and for those of you that don't know where Arian's at, I always think that's kind of halfway between Dunlap and Denison, so for you guys out there that know about the Dunlap Sale Barn or maybe the processing facilities in Denison, we're kind of right in the middle of that. I was directed towards Kelly because he's involved in some drip irrigation experimentation, and it's been working well. Kelly's also won the state trials for no-till irrigated land for 2019, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But anyway,
2: we'll start with welcome, Kelly. Thank you for having me on, Tom.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your experience, I'll say, with drip irrigation. How did you guys get into that? What drove you towards that at the beginning?
2: Coming out of the drought of 2012, that was quite painful and scary. And where we're at here west of Denison, the hills are pretty big and rolling, a lot of terraces, a lot of odd-shaped fields, and a pivot was not going to work. I I just didn't, didn't have a better idea, but I really wanted something to take some risk out of the farming operation. My dad and I were involved in a marketing club. We had gone on a a vacation with that club. Other producers on that vacation were from South Central Nebraska. They started talking about drip irrigation. I had never heard of it. I Googled it, searched it on the internet. I became fascinated by it, and I searched with someone to work with to see if we could put it on our land. It took me three years, and I had really kind of given up, and then a contact I had made originally moved to a different company. Luckily, he called me back, we got connected with Kurt Grimm of Nutridrip out of Hiawatha, Kansas. So Kurt came up, met with my dad and I two different times. You know, there was a lot of uh, skepticism at first because nobody had ever done this. And but we decided to go forward with it. And we put in our first system in the fall of 2015, and we finished about 10:30 or 11 o'clock at night, the night before Thanksgiving. And we worked that late. We're working that hard because the ground had not frozen yet, but a storm was coming and we knew the time was growing short. Sure. So we put the system in. Our first year irrigating that first 78 acres was 2016. We had a contest yield that year of about 290 bushel. And we won the state yield contest with the NCGA, the class. We're in the no-till irrigated class. So we just came out of our fourth year of irrigation. We now have 370 acres under drip. And we have won the state four years in a row. This year we had three entries. We got the top three places in the state, and we we placed second in the nation in the no-till irrigated class.
0: That's fantastic. So I'm sure as you've grown that, you know, from that first year, 78 acres, you've kind of learned a few things, and you you applied that, and you kind of. My assumption is every year just added a little bit more. But it sounds like maybe you're kind of tapped out on how many acres you're going to do? Or are you going to continue to add to that, or what are your thoughts?
2: I believe that we will continue to add to that, but, you know, how, how finances go. I uh, we, We've recently purchased some land, different things like that, and the land that we purchased is land that I want to put under irrigation, but you just can't pay for everything at once. Sure. And I also feel like we are on the brink of a breakthrough on, on setting another yield ceiling, and I would really like to do that and become comfortable with the process there before I put more under irrigation, again, it's taking risk out of it. You know, the first year, our uh, yield was 290. This last year, our yield was 357. I believe that is because with the large CECs we have in our area, the critical concentration of fertilizer in the soil is not high enough. And it takes more fertilizer to grow more bushels based on a crop removal, that's simple science you can't take 400 bushel worth of fertilizer and put it out there and expect to do that in one year it takes time to grow your soil build your soil and have a good system
0: absolutely talk a little more about crop removal you and i talked a little earlier just give us a little more information about what you're talking about there and how that factors into your decision making
2: our decisions on fertilizer and seed are based off of our yield map The yield map, the guidance system, precision farming is very important to us. We use the yield map based on the crop removal. How many bushels we're removing from this square foot? We really like to think we're managing down to a square foot. And how many bushels we're removing from that, you can go on there. If you're yielding 230 bushel corn, you're taking off about 85 or 90 pounds versus versus phosphate. Well, I'd really like to put 100 or 110 pounds back out then to not only remove what I'm taking off, but build the soil over time slowly. And that's how all our decisions are made. And instead of managing by the field or managing by the acre, we manage as tight as we can our variable rate seeding, our variable rate nitrogen, our variable rate potash, all those maps, all those recommendations are based off of the yield map. And they're based off of a crop removal.
0: Absolutely. Okay, great info. You you mentioned a little skepticism when you first started meeting with these guys. and This drip system you've got is underground, right? How does it not get attacked by varmints or frost or, you know, the heaving of the soil in the winter? How do you guys account for that? And what am I missing there?
2: There's a 7-8 line. It's a vinyl line, and it, it lays flat when it doesn't have water in it. Then it expands when the water goes through it. There's what they call an emitter that releases the water and the emitter is pressure compensating because with our elevation changes you want as much water coming out at the top of the hill as you do the bottom of the hill. Absolutely. So there's a seven-eighths line every 60 inches across the field so big you know when you think about a 30-inch row it's every other row and it's 16 inches deep. When we plowed the lines in we then had to drive over top of every line with a tractor to pack it down Typically, then, if you get a good seal, things like that, the mice and the chipmunks, things like that, don't go down that deep. Now, okay. that doesn't mean you won't have a few leaks now and then, but it, it really hasn't been a big problem. And the heaving of the soil with the lay flat line is fine. At the end of the season, drip does come with a large air compressor, and they blow everything out and winterize it. The system costs about $1,500 an acre. So anything that you're going to spend that much money on, your combine, your planter, your tractor, your house you know there's maintenance and uh, to think it's going to be trouble free is is not logical or reasonable but it, it's not been terrible it's been worth the investment
0: it sounds to me like this is only gonna work with a no-till situation with this drip irrigation where I'm from we got a lot of guys who just
2: like to rip that ground every every fall so is this only gonna work in no-till being 16 inches deep you could do some minimum till if you wanted to especially on some flatter ground I'm very worried about erosion anyway and we were no-till farmers anyway with our hills. So if you took it to the Ames, Iowa area, you could do some minimum till, but your vertical tillage, your deep vertical tillage is probably out of the question. The last thing you'd wanna do is catch a dripper line.
0: Right, absolutely. Because of that then, I guess, is how you got into these National Corn Grower Association contests. Tell me just a little bit of experience about that. I mean, you mentioned the last four years, you guys have done very well there. So what kind of interesting things would you like to share with our audience?
2: You know, I was quite fascinated by this at first. I really didn't know that much about the contest. Netafim, the drip irrigation company, of course, is quite excited about the contest because it promotes their product. And they really wanted us to join it and enter it. I had no idea if we would even place, let alone win. um, Irrigation in Iowa, or irrigation really everywhere throughout the whole world has always been used to make arid climates productive. And now, by putting irrigation in the Corn Belt, we're making productive climates super productive. That's the idea. Not a tremendous amount of irrigation in Iowa. And again, it's on more of the sandier, not the best soil. By putting the irrigation here, we've really raised the bar with what we can do. And again, I had no idea that we'd win. In that first year out, we won, and we've won ever since. I meet so few producers that really fertigate, we're big on fertigation, I really don't turn the irrigation on without having a little bit of fertilizer in there, spoon feeding that crop. I think that's very important. It's right there in the root mass, it's delivered all the time, that crop doesn't need to want for anything.
0: And then you're going to make adjustments as you get rain or not get rain to do more or less of that, I assume, throughout the growing season.
2: We have uh, moisture sensors in every field. Uh, it, you know, they're connected to the internet. I have them on my phone, and I watch the moisture sensor. And uh, you know, we just plan accordingly. If the moisture, if it's dry and the moisture is starting to drop, we'll turn the irrigation on. We want to keep it just in that happy spot. Sure. We don't want it to be totally saturated because that takes too much oxygen out of the soil. But we just want to keep a happy medium.
0: Going back to the Corn Growers Association yield contest, this year you're second in the nation in that category. Is that the highest you've been?
2: Yes. This year our our number one contest yield was 357 bushels to the acre. You know, last year we had like 326. This year at 357, we were second in the nation to Dustin Dowdy of Valdosta, Georgia, and he's at 432.
0: And I was going to say, because I looked on the website and it makes it very clear he's a winner in the non corn belt area. So in the corn belt, you're number 1.
2: Right, in you the know, corn belt at- we would be number 1. I'm friends or acquaintances with those people on the east coast. They have a different climate. The intensive management they do, the things those guys have done is very impressive. On a from a dry land scenario, they can't make a living like we can here in the corn belt. Under intensive management, they can do some really impressive things. Okay. I would like to believe that we can do some impressive things too we nobody has just figured out how to do it yet but i sure would like to
0: so you're going to continue to to learn and do more what's your ultimate goal you, you and i talked about this earlier Where my do you ultimate want to get goal to?
2: right now is 446 bushel and why big. that number francis childs raised 445 and i want to be the iowa record holder
0: <laughs> excellent good info tell us just a little bit about how you think about nutrition across the soil and some of the things maybe you're doing that are I'd say unique, but just different than maybe some other people are doing. You're just thinking about things a little differently.
2: The number one thing that we need to address in the soils when we are getting butted up against the less Hills, really, I believe it's, if you're west of highway 59, you know, that's not the ultimate line, but the pH of the soil starts to get higher and we really think that probably 45% of our soil is a high pH. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people in conventional agriculture are always worried about low pH because they can put lime on it. High pH is a much worse problem. Our data indicates that until we get below a 5.4 pH, we don't really see a yield penalty. And my question is, why would I want to amend something? Why would I want to invest in something that doesn't have a yield penalty? Because then it's not costing me dollars. High pH is a tremendous problem for us. It's the number one thing we address. I, I think ammonium sulfate is a great a great thing to use. Whatever is your most inexpensive sulfur source is going to help you do that.
0: But again, it kind of goes back to you knowing your soil and knowing that part of the field that needs addressed the way it needs addressed. You mentioned high pH. That's not normal in a lot of the rest of the state of Iowa. So that guy's going to have to know what his soil is back to your point of you know grid sampling and knowing your soil and then a- addressing it amending that that amending problem it.
2: yes we need to if you can amend your problem areas you will amend the whole field and your income will go up and that's what it's all about
0: great So let me just ask a question of you, Kelly. What would you recommend for that guy that just wants to make a step change? What's the first thing that, or maybe one or two or three things you would suggest he do if he doesn't have the ability to get into the drip irrigation, doesn't have the ability to do some of the other stuff you do? Where would you have him start to just try to make some step changes on yield?
2: I would try to amend the weak areas of your field. Is that going to be pH? Is it because you're high in magnesium? Is it because you're low in potash? Any of those types of things... And I would suggest that you do it from a variable rate standpoint. Don't manage by the field. Manage your data as tight as you can. And even if you can't do it on all your acres, the one thing I have learned is if I can just, if I try it on 10% of my acres or 20% of my acres or just one field and see what happens and then expand from there. So often we get caught up into an all or nothing scenario. I've been guilty of that myself. You've got to walk away from that. Let's try it on this field and see what happens. The one thing that we do, which is not conventional agriculture, our variable rate nitrogen map. So often when that wreck is has been written, the higher yielding areas of the farm get the most nitrogen. The lowest yielding areas of the farm get the least amount of nitrogen. I know this sounds crazy, but ours is 100% the reverse. Really? Because of the thing that we have found is the lowest yielding areas of the farm have low nitrates the highest yielding areas of the farm have high nitrates. So that stands to reason, if there's high nitrates in that stock, why do I need to put a lot more nitrogen out there? My variable rate nitrogen map goes between 140 and 240. And in the areas of the farm that are yielding the most, I put the least amount of nitrogen on. Okay. And in the, the lowest yielding spots get more nitrogen to try to spur that growth. We have seen huge benefits from that. My son Connor is a, is a junior at Iowa State in agronomy. And he had to write a variable rate, prescription for a class. And I said, well, are you gonna write a nitrogen map the way we do it or the way everybody else does it? And he said, dad, if I do it the way you do it, I'll flunk because they'll think I'm crazy.
0: Well, that's good to know uh, and I appreciate that. Let's switch gears a little bit here. I know you guys feed some cattle and so you use a lot of your corn in that, but I I talked to you a little earlier and you do some marketing of that grain as well and, and make some sales into the industry. So what kind of marketing tips would you give the audience? You know, Where to start and how to get a little better at marketing grain?
2: I've educated myself the last few years on the use of options because the, it is so volatile. The last summer we had 450 and 460 corn. I didn't sell enough because I thought it was going to go higher. So what I do now is I will buy an at-the-money put and I will sell a call up higher to finance it, and, which is much the same as a, a premium offer you know, at some elevators, things like that. I feel that I need to do that because I need to protect that floor but yet leave myself open to the top side. The education of those has been a huge increase in our income and, and my ability to market. Marketing is the toughest thing we have to do. Nobody likes to do it. I, I told Tom earlier before we started, it's much like golf. We all enjoy, we enjoy playing golf but we've never done a good job at it. That's the way I feel. Today, I bought some $4 D puts and I sold some 450 calls to finance them. Because I, the problem with buying that put, I never want to have to pay for it. I always want to use something else to finance it. So I do that. If we go up above 450 it becomes a 450 sale. And I, I'd be pretty happy with that.
0: Right. So again, my assumption is you kind of started small, maybe did 5,000 bushels worth or 10 and, and kind of expanded your knowledge of how you're doing that to learn a little bit, basically have a fairly low education cost to learn how to do that and get better at it over the time.
2: Absolutely. At first, do 10,000 bushel, do 5,000 bushel, depending on the size of your operation. I always try to pay attention and learn, and I have found that unless I put a little money out there, I got to have some skin in the game. So start five or 10,000 and do that. I market my cattle with options, I market my grain with options, because then I can, I've got the futures kind of handled, and then I can worry about basis. Well, Kelly, I think that's kind of it for me, unless there's anything else you want to share with the audience. Thanks for having me on today, Tom. I appreciate it.
0: We appreciate having you on, and uh, we look forward to uh, maybe chatting with you in the future. And again, congratulations on the number two in the country and number one in the state. So thanks again. Thank you.